The meeting will uh, the meeting will come to order. Uh, today's uh, committee will consider seven nominations. We have our esteemed colleague Senator Warner with us to introduce the first nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources, Mr. Amos Hochstein. Is that Stein or Stein? No, which, which, which way do you like it? Hochstein. We look forward to your introduction, and with that, I know Senator Warner is very busy. We might go ahead and let that occur, and then we'll move on to the other nominees. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and it's great to see you and my dear friend, Senator Cardin, Senator Menendez, and I know comments have been made at the dais that hopefully my comments will not be held against Amos. Uh, I know we've got all great nominees, but I'm, I'm here to introduce my friend and present to the committee, Amos Huckstein, who, um, to show how strongly I believe in Amos. Amos is not even a Virginia resident. He lives in the district, but I'm still here to uh, support his nomination uh, as Assistant Secretary of State for Energy Resources. I've known Amos since uh, way all over a decade. He advised me when I was governor, advised me when I was gearing up on national security issues. He's served uh, ably over the last few years as special envoy. Um, this is a position, this Assistant Secretary, at this moment in time with energy issues, national security issues being paramount, uh, that needs to be confirmed, needs to be confirmed quickly. Matter of fact, uh, um, Senator Murkowski and I recently chaired a, an Atlantic Council uh, Task Force on Energy Center for U.S., United States Energy and National Security, and one of our recommendations was that this position be filled, and I can't think of anyone that uh, uh, brings more qualifications, more recognition of both national security threats and particularly as they relate to energy and energy opportunities to my good friend Amos Hochstein. So uh, I'm proud to be, represent him and again I ask my colleagues, particularly Senator Cardin and Menendez, not to hold any of my comments against him when, in your consideration. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your service and uh, I'll introduce the other nominees that don't have the handicap of Senator Warner introducing them, but uh, thank you so much. Next on our panel, we have the Honorable Scott Marcial, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, class of career minister to our ambassador, class of career minister to be our ambassador to the Union of Burma. He currently serves as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, position he has held since 2013. Previously, Mr. Marcial serves as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Indonesia. We thank you for being here. Catherine Ebert Gray, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, Class of Minister Counselor, is our nominee to be Ambassador to Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, the Republic of Vanuatu, a place I haven't been. She currently serves as Deputy Assistant Secretary to the Bureau of Administration's Office of Logistics Management, a position she has held since 2011. Previously, Ms. Ebert Gray serves as Director of the Department of Overseas Employment and as Manager, Management Counselor at U.S. Embassies in the Philistines, Philippines and Morocco. Thank you all for being here. Now we will turn to the nominees. We would remind you that your full statement will be included in the record and without objection. If y'all could uh, keep it about five minutes, we'd appreciate it, and then you'll have plenty of questions. We thank you all for your service and for being here and look forward to your comments. And if you'll just begin in order, going across from Amos. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, 
I'm honored to be here as the President's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Energy Resources, or ENR. I want to begin by thanking President Obama and Secretary Kerry for their confidence and with your support for the opportunity to continue to serve our country. I served as Deputy Assistant Secretary from ENR's inception until August of 2014, when I assumed the role of Special Envoy and Coordinator for International Energy Affairs. In my tenure leading the Bureau, ENR's efforts have served as a force multiplier strengthening U.S. leadership in global energy security. It is a profound honor to be considered to serve as the Bureau's first Assistant Secretary. I started my career as a professional staff member in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, so I know the value of close consultation and partnership with Congress. I am humbled to appear before Congress, back where I started, seeking your confidence to serve the American people in this capacity. Most importantly, I'm joined today by my wife, Ray Ringel, and my four children, as well as my parents and mother-in-law. My parents and their families found a home in this country after fleeing the Nazi advance in Europe. My great aunt, Tony Sender, for whom my eldest daughter is named, was an elected member of parliament through most of the Weimar Republic. She too was forced to flee to the United States, supporting the US intelligence effort and ultimately named by Eleanor Roosevelt to represent the United States at the United Nations. My family history has led me from a young age to appreciate what the United States has done for me, strengthening my resolve to give something back to my country and contribute what I can to ensure our leadership in the world endures. Today, as energy has become the foundation for economic growth, political stability, and national security in every part of the world, I am grateful to have the opportunity to contribute in this area. We are living through truly revolutionary times in energy. From oil to gas to renewable energy, due to advances in technology and private investment, U.S. natural gas production has hit record highs. After years of decline, U.S. oil production also rose dramatically. And at the very same time, new investment in renewable energy over the past two years is on track to exceed $80 billion. But let's be clear, no matter how much energy we produce at home, the reality is we live in a global and interlinked economy and energy is a global commodity. Supply disruptions anywhere are a threat everywhere, including here at home. Mr. Chairman, allow me to review a small but representative sample of the critical work ENAR has been engaged in and priorities I will focus on should I be confirmed. First, Iran. Within weeks of the Bureau's formation in 2011, Congress passed its first broad sanctions affecting Iran's oil exports. ENR was tasked with developing the strategy to strictly implement these sanctions. Not an easy task. Our efforts shrank, shrank Iran's customers from 20 to 6 and reduced exports from 2.5 million barrels per day to just 1 million. We achieved this without disrupting global oil supplies or price. This unprecedented effort cut Iranian revenues by over $150 billion and played a key role in forcing them to the negotiating table. Ukraine and Europe continue to be vulnerable to Russia as their dominant and in some cases only supplier. We saw this in 2005 and 9 when Gazprom cut off gas supplies to Ukraine and parts of Europe and Turkey. Russia continues to use energy to gain and maintain political leverage over Ukraine as well as East and Central Europe, recreating Cold War lines between East and West. This includes the so-called Nord Stream 2 project. ENR's active engagement in the region in close collaboration with the European Commission has proven vital to counter Russia's dominance. Just this weekend, we grew concerned that gas could be used as a weapon against Turkey. While we hope this will not happen, it proves once again the urgent need to diversify resources and routes throughout the region. Mr. Chairman, this can be achieved, but only with US and EU leadership. From the beginning, the United States targeted Daesh oil's operations by damaging or destroying mobile refineries and oil collection points. In a region with a long history of illicit oil trade, Daesh was able to adapt quickly, but so have we. U.S. strikes are now targeting specific and strategic critical energy infrastructure in Daesh territory. 
Beyond revenue, they use control of energy resources as a symbol of their authority and legitimacy, which is why ENR remains in lockstep with the rest of the US national security team to degrade and defeat Daesh. As we work to prevent the use of energy as a political tool or weapon, we also are advancing an alternate vision where cooperation in the energy sector can foster collaboration and prosperity. The potential is real, from Azerbaijan, the Caspian and Iraq, through Turkey to Europe, from Israel and Egypt, to Cyprus and Lebanon, to Turkey and Europe. Energy will not lead the politics, but can serve as an incentive for cooperation and collaboration. Mr. Chairman, as you know, oil and gas markets are volatile. This produces both pain and gain, depending on where you stand on the producer and consumer scale. If confirmed, I will continue to make sure we are attentive to the political instability consequences of lower for longer price scenario on countries that rely on hydrocarbon revenues for a significant share of their budgets. In conclusion, Mr. Chairman, I fervently believe in the critical role energy plays in our national security and that of our friends and allies. I look forward to your questions and thank you for having me today. Siebert Gray. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to be ambassador to the, of the United States to Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, and Vanuatu. With the chairman's permission, I would like to quickly introduce my family. My husband, Ian Gray, is also a State Department employee, my, as well as my son, my son, Tommy, and my daughter, Clara, with me. My family has shared both the adventures and the sacrifices of my public service career, and for that, I am profoundly grateful. I recently completed service as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Administration. In the, this role prepared me for effective interagency and multinational collaboration. For four years, I provided oversight to the foreign <coughs> affairs supply chain, I supported crises around the globe, and I assisted with operational transitions in Iraq and Afghanistan. I have also had the privilege to serve in eight countries since I joined the Foreign Service. Half of my professional life since college, in fact, has been spent in the Pacific, including one adventurous and demanding prior tour in Papua New Guinea. During this time, I developed a great fondness for the people, the history, and the cultures of the region, a region of both promise and unique challenges. I was introduced to these exotic nations as a student of World War II history. My father served on the USS Chanticleer in the Pacific Theater, and my father-in-law was an Australian tail force gunner. To this day, the events of the Second World War have crystallized an enduring friendship between the United States and the people of Melanesia. As stated by Secretary Kerry, America's security and prosperity continues to be closely and increasingly linked to our neighbors in Asia Pacific. If confirmed, I will continue to advance the United States' overarching goal in Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, and Vanuatu to help foster sustainable, transparent, and inclusive economic growth, and to support host nation efforts to strengthen education, health, and security. ExxonMobil's 2014 launch of its liquefied natural gas pipeline can be a catalyst for economic growth in Papua New Guinea, and each of these three nations continues to be appropriately focused on improved management of their natural resources, including fishing, mining, and forestry. 
As are all Pacific Island countries, they are also deeply concerned about the effects of climate change on their shores. As you may be aware, Papua New Guinea successfully hosted the Pacific Island Games, the Pacific Island Forum, and the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Meeting of Ministers Responsible for Forestry this year. These are very proud achievements for Papua New Guinea, which will also host the FIFA Under-20 Women's World Soccer Cup next year, and in 2018, they will host the APEC Leaders Summit. Clearly, the future potential of these Southwest Pacific nations relies on their continued commitment to security, democracy, and responsible management of their mineral wealth. Each must tap the talents of all of its citizens, including women and girls. If confirmed, I will continue the work of our mission and gender-based programs to ensure that all of our assistance and public diplomacy programs in Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, and Vanuatu maintain their focus on advancing the status and rights of females. As the Pacific country with the highest rate of HIV AIDS infection, Papua New Guinea also remains a partner with the United States in the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. If confirmed, I intend to work closely with other international donors on control and treatment of the disease in support of their national health care system. The United States shares many interests and values with the people of Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, and Vanuatu. If confirmed, I will be a caring leader of our mission. I will remain focused on the security and safety of Americans, and I will work closely with each nation to build on our strong existing relationships <coughs> and to explore new areas of mutual interest and cooperation. Thank you for this opportunity to appear before you. I welcome the opportunity to answer your questions. Thank you. Mr. Marcial. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to Burma. I thank the President and Secretary Kerry for the confidence they've placed in me, and I'm grateful to the members of the committee for the opportunity to speak to my qualifications and intentions. Um, I also like to begin by thanking my family. Unfortunately, they couldn't join me today. My wife, May, my daughters, Lauren and Natalie, and my parents for their love and support. The Foreign Service is a family effort, and I've been really fortunate to have such a wonderful family by my side for all these years. I joined the Foreign Service in 1985 and have had the privilege of serving and representing the United States in six overseas assignments, as well as in Washington. I believe deeply in public service and have sought throughout my career to advance our country's interests and promote its values. If confirmed, serving as ambassador to Burma would be an incredible opportunity to continue this work in a country whose people look to America to support their own efforts to build democracy after decades of military rule. The past half century has not been kind to the people of Burma, a country that in the early 1960s was considered one of the brightest prospects in Asia, suffered through many years of conflict, bad economic policy, and repressive rule, resulting in intense conflict, poverty, weak institutions, and a deep and pervasive lack of trust between the people and their government. I visited Burma several times between 2005 and 2010, and it was evident that the country had dug itself a very deep hole. In 2011, the current government began to open up, 
It released political prisoners, including democracy leader Aung San Suu Kyi, allowed significantly greater freedom of press, association, and expression, and began economic reforms. After years of cool relations, the United States responded to Burma's opening by stepping up engagement. Our effort has been dedicated to promoting and supporting Burma's democratic transformation, increasing respect for human rights, encouraging economic reform, and helping to advance peace and national reconciliation. Most recently, we supported the country's efforts to make the November 8th parliamentary elections as good as they could be. We were very aware of the numerous flaws in the elections, but we also saw that Aung San Suu Kyi and her National League for Democracy, along with many other parties, viewed the elections as the best opportunity to move the country toward greater democracy and reform. The elections themselves turned out to be reasonably well run. The people turned out in droves to vote for change, and the opposition NLD party won by a landslide. The elections represent an important step forward, but there remains an enormous amount of work to do, starting with ensuring a smooth transition to the new government expected to take office in April. Most of this is work the people of Burma have to do. They have to build their economy, overcome the decades of distrust to advance the peace process and national reconciliation, reform their security forces, strengthen respect for human rights, and mold their constitution into a document more fitting for democracy. But as they work on these challenges, the people of Burma want us there to support and, where possible, help them. We can't fix their problems for them, but we do have a role to play. Engaging diplomatically to encourage progress, calling out behavior that opposes reforms, and suggesting ways forward. And where appropriate, offering assistance to promote economic development, help develop critically important civil society, build institutions, fight poverty and disease. This is what we have been doing, and this is what, in my view, we need to continue to do. If confirmed, I'll continue America's clear focus on supporting those people and organizations in Burma who are working to build peace and democracy and to increase freedom and prosperity. We'll need to engage the new government of Burma right away to encourage progress, to tackle structural problems that haven't been addressed, and to continue broad-based reforms while moving toward peace and national reconciliation. We'll have to encourage the still powerful Burmese military to support rather than impede progress. And we need to continue our focus on the troubling situation in Rakhine State. The treatment of ethnic and religious minorities, including the Rohingya, is critical for Burma's efforts to bring unity to a country that for too long has been divided. If confirmed, I will work with the government, civil society, and international community to promote progress for all communities in Rakhine, including the Rohingya and the ethnic Rakhine. We have long been and remain today a good friend of the people of Burma. With the recent reforms and elections, these people now have the best opportunity in generations to move toward a freer, more democratic, and more prosperous future. We should do all we can to support and assist them. Thank you again for considering my nomination. I look forward to your questions. We thank you all for your testimony. And uh, Mr. Hochstein, I want to first thank you for coming to our office several months ago to walk us through strategically what the State Department's doing to try to diversify uh, energy supplies in Europe. It was very helpful to us, and uh, I don't even know at the time if you were even nominated for this position, but uh, I thank you for doing that. Um, and I, for the record, I do, uh, I would like for you to talk a little bit about that. I know that many of our European friends are heavily dependent on Russia for energy. Poland, for instance, imports 500,000 barrels a day, 96% of their oil, uh, one-third of the natural gas supply to, to Europe. 
comes through Russia. Could you talk a little bit about how you see going forward what we would do to help our friends diversify uh, their energy supplies? Senator, thank you. I think that's one of the most critical areas of what we need to focus on today. The vulnerability that Europe uh, has is split in two. Uh, the eastern and central part of Europe is where the real vulnerability lies. And the, the vulnerability is not only in oil, it's, it's primarily in gas, where Russia has used that particular tool and dependency as a political leverage. Today, we have, because of the tradition and history of the Cold War, the infrastructure all leads from Russia through Ukraine into Eastern and Central Europe. So several countries there, if you look beyond Poland, Bulgaria, Hungary, uh, and Romania, et cetera, are nearing between 70 and 90% of their dependency on gas comes from this one single supplier. What, while we were in a uh, weak position to respond to the aggressive action in 2009, we've done a lot of work since 2009 when the cutoff really affected large parts of Europe. In 2014, when they cut the gas in June to Ukraine, we were able to get reverse flows of gas into Ukraine uh, against their expectations. But that's not enough. What needs to happen is new infrastructure projects that will interlink uh, this area of Europe from the East Balkans to the West Balkans, south and north of that, uh, to be able to make sure that any gas that comes in is able to flow. That doesn't exist today. It all goes in one direction and it all comes from one source. We're working closer today with the EU than ever before to be able to make that str strategy a reality. We've helped them through thinking through some of this uh, strategically. Uh, I've been traveling extensively throughout the region, and we've prioritized this throughout the administration to be able to see a conclusion to that. Next week, there will be a signing in Sofia in Bulgaria of the final investment decision on a new pipeline that will connect Greece to Bulgaria. That will allow flows from Azerbaijan through Turkey to go into Bulgaria. It will allow potentially Israeli or Egyptian gas to come in from the Eastern Mediterranean and Kurdish gas from, uh, from Iraq uh, in the future, in a few years from now, to enter as well. In addition, if, we put, if there'll be an LNG terminal there, American gas can enter there as well. That will create real competition, lower prices, and a total and complete diversification of resources. Russia doesn't need to be out of the game, they just have to stop messing with the game. And I think that uh, if we have these projects, that will happen. Right now, um, we're the only country in the world, I guess, that uh, doesn't export our, uh, our petroleum. And I'm just wondering if you think that it's in our national interest for us to be able to do so. Um, so as you know, we've, Mr. Chairman, we've uh, begun we license the gas exports and the first cargo will go out uh, in January um, and we will begin the historic transition to an exporter in natural gas. Uh, the discussion on the petroleum side, on crude, uh, we do export uh, products. Uh, so refined products of crude are exported. Right. Uh, and, uh, and lately we've, or recently we started exporting uh, condensates as well. I think I know that there's a debate, a very healthy debate here in Congress and, and in the administration, and I think that's something that we're still talking about. Uh, I look at it not from the domestic uh, economic issues, but from the foreign policy side. Uh, and I think that uh, today in the, in the American picture of where we are today, I'm not sure if we lifted the ban there would actually be exports uh, because of where we are. But there is no doubt that several of our allies have, uh, have asked for it and are interested in it. I don't know that it will have a material effect 
as much as a psychological one. Uh, but I know that there are several other considerations to, uh, to consider uh, when making this decision. That's a, a good non-answer, and uh, I, I would have expected you to give uh, that answer, but I do appreciate the conversations we've had in private. And as it relates to Iran, um, when do you expect them to get back up to full capacity, and who is it uh, most specifically you think they'll, they'll, uh, they'll be dealing with relative to their own exports? So today they're still under sanctions, uh, but if uh, assuming that they fulfill their side of the agreement and sanctions are removed, uh, they will be able to increase their exports uh, by a significant amount uh, fairly, in fairly quick order, um, both because of how much oil they have in storage and because of the capability of some of the fields to increase. But I don't think they can go, I don't expect them to be able to go back to their previous levels prior to 2012 all that quickly. They're entering the market, or they're re-entering the market in a, at a difficult time for the market, at, uh, where crude is at $45. Uh, their OPEC competitors are uh, protecting their uh, market share rather than protecting price. Uh, and they have a lot of work to do on their own fields. Um, they'll have to deal with companies that will be interested in taking the uh, considerable risk of, of going in, uh, the high insurance rates. And they'll have to have a new kind of uh, contract mechanism that will, be that will be attractive to those companies. So I think it's going to take a lot more time uh, than people think. But in the short order, there will be a bump up of, uh, of exports. On gas, I think that it will be a lot longer than that. Mr. Marcial, uh, you talked about uh, a number of the problems that exist in Burma. And, uh, and I appreciate you doing that in your presentation. Uh, and uh, obviously, we're excited about the election process that just has occurred. But for all the promise of the political transformation of the country, serious, and serious challenges confront them, as you know. Ethnic strife, persecution of the country's Muslim minority, vast corruption, human rights abuses by the military, and a rise of Buddhist nationalism, among other colleagues. Other challenges uh, threatened to undermine the transformation. Uh, I just came from. Uh, a country, Egypt, which has a different set of challenges that we're trying to, to figure out a way to balance our efforts there in an appropriate way. But uh, how would you suggest that our nation balance our objectives there appropriately, uh, ushering them along, but also urging them to deal with some of the internal issues that they have to deal with? Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, you outlined some of the incredible number of challenges that, uh, that the country faces. Uh, I think since we began increased engagement in 2011, when the current government began the reform, we have been very focused on, you know, broadly defined supporting the reform effort. And that includes obviously moving toward a more democratic system, improving respect for human rights as well as rule of law. Uh, promoting broad-based economic development, all dealing with you know, the ethnic conflict and the peace process. So I think going forward, uh, the first step, I, I would say, is uh, doing all we can to ensure a smooth transition. Um, this is kind of uncharted territory for Burma, uh, a transition to what we expect would be a, a government led by the what has been the opposition, NLD, would take place in April. So we're focused very much on, again, doing all we can to ensure that transition happens. And then would expect the incoming government to focus on broad-based economic development, but also addressing many of these challenges. Aung San Suu Kyi has, has spoken out 
for many years about the need to improve human rights, uh, the peace process, all of these things. So I, I think we want to be broadly supportive of the incoming government um, and at the same time where there are challenges and particularly difficult issues. I would highlight the, the treatment of, of the Rohingya for one. Uh, you know, have very honest conversations with both the incoming government, but also other players in, in the Burmese system who, who might be uh, less enthusiastic about reforms. Well, thank you, out of uh, uh, courtesy to my colleagues. I'm going to move on to Senator Cardin. Thank you so much for uh, the way you ranking member of this committee, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, I thank you for accommodating these hearings. Uh, very important positions, and as the chairman has always done, he's expedited the procedures of our committee, and I very much appreciate that. And I, I thank all of our nominees that are here for your willingness to serve uh, the United States and the public. We know it's not easy. It is uh, challenging, in some cases dangerous, and you do this because of your commitment to our country and our principles. And we thank you and we thank your families because we know you can't do it without a supportive family. So we, we very much appreciate that very much. To Secretary Marcial, I want to personally thank you for your help uh, in the subcommittee on East Asia and Pacific. You've been a, a key advisor to us and we very much appreciate you always being willing uh, to help us understand the challenges in that region. And now you're going to take on one of the most difficult challenges in Burma. Uh, you talked about Burma, and I, we all agree that they've made incredible progress. There's no question about that from its military government uh, to having elections. But as you pointed out, the Rohingyas were discriminated. They weren't included in the election. And there are serious issues in regards to migration, refugees, trafficking, etc. I, I guess I would encourage you to be specific with the Burmese as to what they need to do in order to go to the next level. What we find in many countries in transition, they make some immediate progress, then they stall, in some cases go in the wrong direction. So could you be a little more specific as to how we can advance um, the uh, progress in, in Burma, uh, whether it's gonna require uh, the United States to encourage, along with our allies, uh, constitutional reform, so that we know that we have the framework for true transformation of that country into a more open democratic society. Um, thank you, uh, Senator Cardin, and thank you for your, your kind words. Um, I would say that, again, as I used the term earlier, this is uncharted territory. It's uncharted territory for the Burmese as they move to this transition to a government that, given NLD's landslide victory, we would expect to be led by the NLD. Um, I think uh, at the risk of speaking on behalf of the Burmese people, um, it was pretty clear from just the vote totals that they were voting for change, that they were saying we want more when it comes to reform, more change, uh, better lives, that sort of thing. So I, I think that the new government comes in with a mandate for more change. Uh, obviously that change wasn't, isn't going to be only on the issues that we're most concerned about regarding human rights, but I, I would expect that would be part of it. So some of the challenge is going to be the new government's ability to work with the other key players, certainly the military. The military will continue to have 25% of the seats in parliament uh, for the foreseeable future at least, and will continue to be able to name key ministers, including the Minister of Home Affairs, the Minister of Defense, that sort of thing. So I think one of the specific things we will do, we are already are doing, is encouraging a smooth transition 
uh, toward that new government, including dialogue between the NLD, specifically Aung San Suu Kyi, the military, and others, so that they can find a way to work together that allows for further reform. So I think the impetus reform, from reform for reform is quite strong within the country, uh, but there, there are going to be some groups that might resist that. And part of, part of what we should do is focus on trying to encourage all groups to support that reform and, and not get in the way of what the Burmese people um, have said. I think there are some specific uh, things, technical assistance in some areas where they need some help to get some things done, better uh, rule of law, training, these sorts of things. Uh, and on the situation in Rakhine State, which is one where there's, there's not a lot of support uh, for, um, for treating everybody in Rakhine State uh, with, with the, uh, equal protection of the law, I think that's a more long-term effort that we have to have some frank conversations, but also perhaps offer uh, some specific suggestions about here's some things that you might look at doing uh, to help them overcome what may be one of their most difficult challenges. Thank you for that answer. Ms. Ebert Gray, um, human rights is a critical issue in the Pacific Islands also. It's where America's presence can make a huge difference. It's one of the great contributions that we make through our missions uh, in other countries. In the Pacific Islands, uh, we hear not only about democratic institutions that are challenged, but also their focus on uh, the climate change issues and how it's affecting the security of their people. How do you see your role in advancing human rights in the Pacific Islands? Um, and uh, you can include in that uh, how you would deal with uh, the, their specific concerns on climate change, which are not necessarily the same as the um, non-island world. Thank you, Senator. Um, the Pacific Island nation leaders are deeply concerned about climate change, understandably so. And I understand that they met with President Obama this week in Paris to discuss their concerns. Uh, since 2000, the United States has an committed over $60 million in climate change adaptation programs, including mango, mangrove preservation in Papua New Guinea and ecosystem adaptation in the Solomon Islands. And there certainly will be more programs to come. As far as human rights, according to our human rights reports, both, all three nations actually have a legal foundation which respects individual liberties, freedom of the press, um, independent judiciaries, and many of the other foundations that are necessary. But all three countries also suffer with many abuses. They have uh, discrimination against women and girls. Mm -hmm. They have um, a, a poor police across all three islands. Uh, a number of slowdowns in the judiciary and other ways that human rights are not getting the attention and the corrections that are necessary. We have invested through the years in human rights improvements, and if confirmed, I hope to continue to focus on both areas Thank and you. bring energy and attention to those two high global priorities. Uh, thank you. Mr. Hochstein, I want to get one question in to you because to me, good governance and transparency is critically important on energy resources, and you have a major responsibility here. I, I listened to your statement, I read your statement, and I certainly agree with the points that you've made in every major area, but I want to c concentrate on ISIL for one moment. According to the Financial Times, there's still $1.5 billion from ISIL a day, uh, 
million dollars from ISO a day going into the black market. And ISO presents a unique challenge to the civilized world. And yes, it's right for us to try to take out their energy resources as we do, as our military does. But we gotta figure out new ways to stop the flow of any of their resources that go into any market for, for financial support for their terrorist activities. So can you just share with us your views, how we can take every conceivable step to destroy any financial ability that's going to ISIL through uh, uh, oil or gas resources? Thank you, Senator. I, I couldn't agree more. I, what we have been tried to do over the last uh, few months, especially since, and, and I'll say what I can in an open hearing, and I'm happy to do the, uh, more in a, in a different setting. Um, since the Abu Sayyaf raid, uh, we, my team has been able to look together with the Pentagon uh, at a lot of the details of how it is managed. And I, I don't believe that the revenue that is they're generating is coming necessarily through the exports, or smuggling rather, uh, across borders. Most of it is being consumed and generated inside the areas of Iraq that they are under their control as well as Syria, including trade with the regime. But it's not only about the revenues, it's also about using these resources as a means to uh, entrench their control of the territory that they hold. What we've therefore done is instead of trying to hit just a number of targets, as you suggested is less effective, is look at it from the full value chain, from the production, from the holding of the territory, production of the oil or the gas, the processing, the refining, and putting it on the trucks, which are the veins, and getting it out into the economy. The way they generate the revenues is largely at that early stage. After that, what happens is more about supporting the territory than revenue. And that's why you've seen over the last few weeks a stepped up approach that is not only more bombings, but different kind of bombings. We're going after different assets uh, that I believe will have a, already are having a significant impact, but we can do a lot more. Uh, and we're working with, with uh, my colleagues at, uh, at the Pentagon, at CENTCOM, uh, and uh, to figure out what is the right mix of which targets uh, to go after. So I can expand a little bit more. I, that's very helpful. I hadn't thought, and I, I think in a different setting, we should talk about the different avenues of where we can stop the flow of revenues coming into ISIL. And you make a good point that if it's at the early stages of the chain, hitting the later stages is not going to make much of a difference. But it does still stop the supply chain, which could affect their revenues. So it, it, we, we really need to think outside the box to stop any possibility of them benefiting from these uh, resources. I fully agree. We've dedicated now a whole team that is working embedded together with, with uh, some folks at DOD and, and uh, out in the field uh, to be able to help in giving that. We've been doing analysis of the expansion of the oil and gas infrastructure gains uh, for the last two years. And it didn't start now. It's a very strategic taking of territory based on infrastructure and resources. Thank so we're happy to expand on that. Very good, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Hochstein, I just want to ask you a question following up on what Senator Gardner had uh, talked about. But first, thank you to all of you for being here. And uh, to uh, Secretary Marcial, thank you very much for uh, joining me in my office as well. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Hochstein, you mentioned the expansion of oil and gas gains by uh, ISIS. Where are their gains today? Where, you know, how much do they have today compared to where uh, they were when, when we first started our airstrikes? 
So the airstrikes that we started with many months ago, the targeting the energy sector, uh, really went after mobile, as I said in my testimony, mobile refineries uh, and uh, some of the oil collection points. And that disrupted for a while, uh, and it reduced the revenues and the profits, I would say, right? Because what you can do with the oil when you have a refinery is you can, it's a, it's a higher value per barrel that you produce. Uh, so we were able to reduce that value. Uh, but they adapted, and as you see in a lot of countries, and especially post-conflict countries, they're able to do things that uh, Halliburton and Exxon would love to be able to do, but can't, uh, with using barbed wire and some, uh, and some scotch tape. Um, and they've been adapted. So what we have done is now, with the new information that we have, uh, looking more strategically at that value chain, uh, began a different bombing campaign that will target it differently. So taking out the trucks in the last couple of weeks, uh, looking at some of the strategic hits that we've done, uh, I believe that we've already seen, um, in, and I can show that to you in a different setting, uh, that there's been a material change on the ground today. I can't give you an answer as to what is that million and a half dollar a day or million dollar a day uh, figure change to. If you give me a couple of weeks, I can. Do we believe they have more means of production today than they did in no. terms of energy? Okay, thank you no. very much. Um, further questions along the same lines of energy uh, discussions that we've been having. We talked a little bit about uh, some of the negotiations in Iran in your testimony. You talked about uh, the $150 billion uh, that uh, Iran faced in cuts to their oil revenues by the sanctions uh, that were put in place. Do we know what an estimate would be of the increase of Iranian uh, revenues will be through international sanctions relief when it comes to oil? It, it's hard to put a dollar figure to that uh, because I don't, I don't actually have access to their engineering um, in their fields. They've had a lot of cannibalization of their fields uh, after years of sanctions. Uh, so they'll have to do a lot of work to be able to do that effectively and efficiently. So I can't tell you a dollar figure of how much that will be. I don't know how many barrels they're going to produce and I don't know what that's going to do. If they come online at a, all of a sudden, instead of tempered, what does that do to the price of oil uh, based on the fact that we have a supply glut at the moment? Um, so there's a lot of factors that would have to go into it. Clearly, the, n they can't get anywhere near to where they were uh, in 2000, early 2012 before the sanctions went into effect. Now, how many uh, of our trade partners are actively pursuing uh, energy deals with Iran right now? There, there, there are a number, um, but there are... And who would that be if you, if you could... I probably shouldn't name companies uh, specifically, but if you look at the press, you'll see some of the uh, press reporting on companies, international oil companies that are entering, uh, that are going there for consultations. But I think it's important to separate between who's going there for a meeting uh, or a handshake uh, versus what will be signed. The terms that we've seen of the contract so far are not good enough to be able to uh, support uh, deals. And they cannot, based on, without threat of sanctions, they cannot conclude any deals at the moment. And I spent a lot of time uh, uh, reminding my friends in the industry overseas that sanctions are still in place and any violation today will be treated in the same way. But I think, I think there'll be fewer. What I hear from private conversations with the CEOs uh, is that it's a, they're a lot more tentative uh, in their approach than, uh, than the media would suggest. Mr. Augustine, uh, do you think it's appropriate to include prohibitions of funding uh, within aid programs for fossil fuel projects or for coal? I, I think that there is, I wasn't, my shop is not necessarily involved in the decision on the, I believe that you mean the coal financing in uh, international financial institutions. That's administered by, by the Department of Treasury. Uh, but there is, uh, I, 
because there's exceptions there for countries that are below the, pov the poverty line administered as IDA, um, or um, if there are other areas, uh, there are other exceptions, I've been supportive uh, of the industry where I can uh, based on the, on the new guidelines. Uh, I've met with uh, Peabody and others when they were trying to uh, work in, uh, in Mongolia. Uh, we have supported, because of these special circumstances in Kosovo, the creation of a new facility and a new coal plant in Kosovo where it replaces an old, dirtier one. Um, so there are restrictions in place that I, that I live with. Um, and, uh, but within those, there are still uh, 79 countries or so that are accepted from, from that policy that we are still able to work in. But in terms of our negotiations with uh, other nations, you think it is an appropriate, uh, can be an appropriate tool to restrict uh, funding for fossil fuel projects? I think based on the agreement that was reached at the OECD, it's going to have a significant impact uh, when it's not just the United States alone, when it's, uh, when it's more countries doing that together as a policy. Uh, but I probably would have to let others in the Department of Treasury decide whether how that will have, what material effect that would have financially uh, on the uh, on coal projects. Mr. Marcial, uh, turning to, to Burma, with the transition of the government completed in April, uh, what happens, uh, that you're, what are you most concerned about that could happen between uh, April and January in terms of the transition? Uh, we talked a little bit about this in the office, but what do we need to see? What are you concerned that we, we could see and how that could affect the transition? Um, thank you, Senator. Um, what, what we're hoping to see and, and uh, I think what we expect to see is uh, a transition where it, that proceeds as it's supposed to. Uh, with the sitting of a new parliament in February, which will then elect a president uh, who was, would sit with his or her cabinet probably in April. Um, so what we're hoping to see um, is that, that no individuals or institutions try to interfere in that process. So far, uh, as of today, uh, the signs are good. Uh, the, the military leadership, the current president, et cetera, are all insisting that they will abide by the results of the voting and, and uh, support the transition. We understand that Aung San Suu Kyi will be meeting with the Commander-in-Chief and the President this week, which is a very important and useful step uh, to have this dialogue to figure out how they, how they make this transition work smoothly. And then, assuming that that transition does happen, I mean, I, there'll be a, a thousand challenges at least. One of the big ones will be expectations, as we discussed earlier in your office. Um, there'll be tremendous expectations uh, for uh, this new government, both inside the country with people looking for economic benefits and, and further reforms. My guess is there'll be a lot of expectations internationally and it'll be a, a real challenge for any government, but particularly one with, without any experience in government uh, to manage. Mm -hmm. And if, if confirmed, we talked earlier about sort of the, the carrot and stick approach and leverage that the United States would have in terms of the transition uh, for the new government. Uh, if confirmed, what would your position be in lifting any remaining U.S. sanctions against Burma uh, during the transition uh, process? Well, uh, we, of course, we had broad sanctions against kind of Burma writ large uh, up until 2011 when the reforms started. After those reforms began, we suspended some of those sanctions, kind of the broad sanctions against the overall economy, while maintaining targeted sanctions on individuals and entities who uh, were either involved in human rights violations or were clearly uh, blocking reforms or undermining reforms. 
Um, so those, those very uh, targeted sanctions continue uh, today as the main sanctions against Burma, but the overall broad-based sanctions uh, are not there because we want the economy actually to be healthy. So um, at this point, and certainly going forward to the transition, I wouldn't anticipate nor recommend any dramatic change to that. I think we want to see how this transition works. And then I think we'd want to consult with the new government um, as well as Congress uh, closely on any changes. I would note that we do, you know, the, the sanctions, the targeted sanctions are uh, somewhat dynamic in the sense that people can be uh, taken off the designated list uh, if they show that they have, you know, ended the, the behaviors that put them on the list. People can be added to the list, uh, and we can always make adjustments uh, when we see unintended consequences or problems. But what we will do is make sure that we're consulting closely with Congress, uh, given the great interest. But you believe any any delisting, you know, if they're on the SDN list, that they are any change of their listing would only occur if they specifically change their behavior as it relates to the reason they were placed on the list in the first place. That right. Yeah. There's a there's a process in place that's run by Treasury's OFAC office. Uh, there were particular requirements. I'm not an expert on it, but that, that entities or individuals on the specially designated nationals list would, would have to follow in order to be uh, considered to be removed from the list. Thank That's you. correct. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Thank you Senator. Uh, we have, as you know, another panel of four people. It's uh, towards the end of the year, and people are trying to move out and hopefully get confirmed. Uh, Ms. Abbott Gray, I want to thank you in particular for having your family here. And, to the family know that she's been through extensive questioning in private and answered all kinds of other questions. So uh, I hope that all three of you will answer any QFRs that come your way after this presentation today. We thank all of you for your service to our country. And uh, with that, uh, uh, we hope you'll go on to something constructive and we'll bring the other panel up. But thank you all for being here. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Say, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Best to you. Mr. Hochstein, uh, just for what it's worth, you missed your greatest asset by not introducing your family. And, and uh, so uh, I doubt you would have had the number of questions you had had you done so. So anyway, we welcome you all. We didn't realize you were here. Thank you. Thank you for being here.
Okay, we'll now move to the second panel. We thank you all for being here. Mr. John D. Feely, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, has been nominated to be our ambassador to the Republic of Panama. Mr. Feely is currently the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs. Previously, Mr. Feely served as Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City, Mexico, Assessor in the Office of Recruitment and Director of the Office of Central American Affairs. He also has served in the United States Marine Corps, and we thank you for that service also. Next, we have Linda Tagliatella to be our Ambassador to Barbados, St. Kitts, Nevis, St. Lucia, Antigua, Barbuda, Dominica, Grenada, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Um, I don't know what you did to achieve that, but uh, <laughs> we uh, know it was something special. She's a career member of the Senior Executive Service and currently serves as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Human Resources, position she's held since 2002. She has also served as Director and Deputy Director of the Office of Resource Management and Organization Analysis at the State Department. Todd Chapman, career member of the Senior Foreign Service, class of Minister Counselor, is nominated to be Ambassador to Ecuador. He currently serves as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs, position he has held since 2014. Mr. Chapman previously served as Deputy Chief of Missions at U.S. Embassies in Brazil and Mozambique. Jean Elizabeth Maines, did I pronounce that correctly? Thank you. A career member of the Foreign Service, class, class of Counselor, is our nominee to be Ambassador to El Salvador. She currently serves as Principal Deputy Coordinator in the Bureau of International Information, Program, Information Programs at the Department of State position she's held since 2013. Prior to this, she served as Deputy Director of the Department's Florida Regional Center and as Counselor for Public Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, I think I'd remind you that your full statement will be entered into the record. Uh, staying within five minutes is appreciated, and uh, we look forward, if you would just go down, starting with you, ma'am. Uh, we'd appreciate it. Go in order. And again, thank you all for your willingness to serve in these capacities. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman and Senator Cardin, it is a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for the opportunity to appear, to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to Antigua and Barbuda, Barbados, Dominica, Grenada, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, St. Vincent's, and the Grenadines. I am grateful to the President and Secretary Kerry for their support and confidence, as well as to the members of this committee for their kind consideration. Please allow me to introduce the members of my family present today, my brother David Swartz from Texas and my sister Susan Swartz from New York. Throughout my life, my family, including my parents, have been essential source of support. Without their love, encouragement, and belief in me, I would not be here today. Mr. Chairman, I believe that our nation is most effective when we lead by example and in accordance with our values, and I will seek to continue in this tradition if confirmed as ambassador. If confirmed, I will proudly represent the United States in the Eastern Caribbean, a region which we share strong cultural, historical, and familial ties. 
Since achieving independence in the 1960s and 1970s, the nations of the Eastern Caribbean have thrived as democracies and maintained friendly and productive relations with the United States. If confirmed, my top priority as ambassador will be the safety and welfare of American citizens residing in and visiting the Caribbean, a region that hosts nearly 2 million tourists annually, the vast majority U.S. citizens. Thousands more of our citizens live, work, or study in the Caribbean. I am also committed to strengthening the safety and security of our Caribbean partners. If confirmed, I will continue our efforts to bolster citizen security through the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative, which seeks to reduce the threats to citizen security by reducing illicit trafficking of narcotics and firearms, improving public safety by strengthening law enforcement, judicial sector, and security services, increasing respect for rule of law and human rights, and promoting crime prevention activities. As ambassador, I would also work to promote fundamental freedoms and universal human rights, including the rights of the LGBTI communities, and I will pay particular attention to empowering and improving the status of women in the Eastern Caribbean. If confirmed, I will work to implement the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, including the vigorous investigation of cases, the prosecution and conviction of perpetrators, and the proactive identification of and provisions of service to victims. Several economic issues have also deep, have a deep impact on the island nations. The first is the high cost of energy. Caribbean nations have some of the highest electricity costs in the world due to their almost exclusive reliance on imported diesel fuel. The Caribbean Energy Security Initiative, launched by Vice President Biden in 2014, seeks to increase the region's access to energy sector financing and to improve the governance and diversification of island energy sectors. The Eastern Caribbean continues to experience stagnant economic growth and high debt levels. The region is also susceptible to hurricanes, which in a matter of hours can set these tourism and agricultural dependent nations back several years. If confirmed, I will work to encourage the nations of the Eastern Caribbean to seek out more sustainable sources of energy, to build resilience to the impacts of climate change, and to strengthen their economies through greater diversification and prudent debt, ma debt management. Next year will mark the 55th anniversary of the Peace Corps. Currently, 63 volunteers work on literacy projects in some of the region's most vulnerable and marginalized community. If confirmed, I will promote and support our Peace Corps volunteers. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, if confirmed, I look forward to working with you and your colleagues in Congress and with the American people to advance our shared interests in this most important region. Thank you for your gracious time. I would be happy to answer your, any questions you may have. Thank you so much, Mr. Feely. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. From the oath that I swore as an Eagle Scout to the one I took upon commissioning as a second lieutenant of Marines and the oath by which I've lived and worked for the last 25 years as a Foreign Service officer advancing American interests in the Western Hemisphere, my life and career have been marked by public service. This is an enormous privilege. I thank the President and the Secretary for the confidence they've shown in me by their nomination, and it is in that spirit of gratitude that I come before you today to seek your approval that I might continue to serve our great nation as Ambassador in Panama. I'm joined today by my wife, a Senior Foreign Service Officer herself from San Juan, Puerto Rico, Cherry Feely. My two sons and my grandson couldn't be with us, but I'm sure that the number of hits on C-SPAN has gone up as a result of them watching. 
In my current position at the State Department, I oversee the daily operations of our 53 embassies and consulates, from Canada to the Caribbean, from Mexico to Argentina. I work on the operating budgets, the foreign assistance programs, and the personnel assignments that undergird American diplomacy throughout this hemisphere. The food we eat, the energy we consume, and the goods and services we trade with our neighbors in the Americas have more of an impact, I would argue, on the daily lives of our country's citizens than any other region of the world. And so it is vitally important that we know and understand these neighbors and partners to ensure our own security and prosperity. This is the essence of the President's strategy for engagement in Central America. And Panama, whose destiny has been entwined with ours since its founding, is among the most critical of our partners in achieving the security, prosperity, and governance goals of this strategy. Panama is a good news story in many aspects, and if confirmed, I will work with this committee to deepen and expand what is an already excellent bilateral relationship. Panama shares our commitment to protecting democratic freedoms and human rights. In 2014, they defied polls, and with the help of robust international election monitoring, they elected an underdog candidate as president who has made education and anti-corruption pillars of his vision for Panama's future. You'll recall that Panama served as the host of the Summit of the Americas earlier this year, where landmark encounters between civil society organizations and the region's leaders occurred. Given its stability and relative prosperity, Panama, like the United States, is a destination rather than a source of immigration. And as such, Panama understands the evils of human trafficking and was recently upgraded on our annual Trafficking Persons Report. If confirmed, Mr. Chairman, I will continue the good work already begun with our Panamanian partners to eradicate this form of modern slavery. Panama's geographic location makes it a bridge in both the physical and metaphysical sense of the word. With a robust economy, Panama has leveraged its bridging function to become a logistical center for the region. The Panama Canal is a vital commercial corridor for the United States. Two out of every three ships transiting the canal will stop at a U.S. port and the global traffic across the bridge that is Panama will be accentuated by the Panama Canal expansion due to be completed in 2016. This expansion will bring benefits to Panama and to the United States, potentially doubling imports on the U.S. East and Gulf Coasts by 2029. Put simply, the expansion will lower shipping costs between the United States and Asia, expand our markets, and create jobs for American workers. Another good news story, Panama is among our best partners working on education and innovation. The literacy rate for 15-year-olds is high for the region, around 94%. Bilingual Panama is the Panamanian government's ambitious plan to bring thousands of Panamanian English teachers to study at U.S. universities over the next five years, and we support that effort fully. Now, Mr. Chairman, Panama is not without challenges. Its bridging location renders it vulnerable to organized crime, narcotics trafficking, and money laundering, and the corruption that is attendant to those illicit activities are also threats to Panama's security and prosperity. If confirmed, I will work with Panama to address those ills as well as the challenges, and in doing so, I will support U.S. priorities such as our significant retiree and expatriate population that lives in Panama. I will look to support greater foreign investment opportunities for American businesses, and most of all, I will seek to work with our Panamanian partners to shore up the integrity of our interconnected financial and banking systems. I thank you for this opportunity, and I welcome any questions. Thank you very much. Ms. Maines. 
Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the next Ambassador of the United States to the Republic of El Salvador. I'm humbled by the trust and confidence President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry have shown by sending my name to the Senate for consideration at this pivotal moment in the bilateral relationship. I'm also grateful for the support of my family, including members here today, my husband, Hector Serpa, and one of our two daughters, Candela. Our other daughter, Connie, definitely wishes she could be here, but she's preparing for end-of-year exams in college. I also want to thank my parents, Roger and Betty Maines, who instilled in me the values of hard work, dedication, and integrity as I watched them build our family business. They're tuning in remotely from Florida, as is my 90-year young grandmother, Alice Masters. Today is even more special because it was 25 years ago that I started my foreign policy career in this very place as an intern with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, just down the hall in room 452. I also want to recognize the current U.S. Ambassador to El Salvador, Marie Carmen Aponte. Under her leadership of the embassy, the people of the United States have been well represented over the last five years. If confirmed, I look forward to working with this committee and others in Congress to enhance the bilateral relationship between the United States and El Salvador as well as to increase regional integration with other Central American countries. This will include significant focus on three areas, stabilizing the security environment, improving the business investment climate, and strengthening government institutions. El Salvador is one of our closest partners in the Western Hemisphere. The people of El Salvador have demonstrated their commitment to democracy through peaceful transfer of power since the 1992 peace accords that ended the Civil War. While El Salvador continues to face tremendous security challenges, as well as a range of political, economic, and social issues, a stable and economically viable future is possible. The commitment of President Sanchez Seren and those of other leaders across the Northern Triangle in developing and leading the comprehensive plan Alliance for Prosperity represents an unprecedented opportunity to solidify the gains of the past and build for the future. The plan reflects a multidisciplinary and collective approach to addressing fundamental issues preventing long-term growth and stability in the region. The United States is and must continue to be a central player in advancing these efforts. The U.S. strategy for engagement in Central America, combined with initiatives under the Partnership for Growth and Millennium Challenge Corporation, serves as the foundation for U.S. engagement in Central America and El Salvador in particular. We are at a crossroads in Central America. We have committed partners, including the host government, leaders in the business community, civil society, international organizations, and the people of El Salvador. Now is the moment for American leadership and investment to help guide the region to a better future. Fundamentally, the biggest asset for both the United States and El Salvador is the people who support this effort. While there are over six million of people in El Salvador, there are over two million people of Salvadoran descent who live in the United States. These include many community leaders across Maryland, California, Texas, New York, Virginia, and the District of Columbia. If confirmed, I will continue to strengthen these bonds between our two countries as we work in partnership to support the implementation of the strategy. As outlined in the U.S. Strategy for Engagement in Central America, one country cannot succeed alone. Regional integration is a core component of the strategy. If confirmed, 
my team and I will enhance the collaboration at all levels in the region with specific focus on Honduras and Guatemala. You have my guarantee that I will use the important role of the U.S. Ambassador to bring all parties together, to serve as the convener and the facilitator of ideas, and to make the best investments for a stable and growing El Salvador that remains a strong partner with the United States. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, it's an honor to be here, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chapman. <clears throat> Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, thank you for this privilege this afternoon to appear before you today. I am indeed grateful to President Obama and Secretary Kerry for the trust and confidence they have shown in me through this nomination to be the next United States Ambassador to the Republic of Ecuador. I would like first to publicly honor and express deep gratitude for my wife, Janetta, who is here with me today, and my two sons, Joshua and Jason, who have faithfully supported me in this 25-year journey in the Foreign Service. They have shared in the joys, in the excitement, and sometimes in the hardships which this life sometimes brings. I'm also so grateful for my parents, Bob and Marilyn Chapman, who are always my greatest champions and greatest cheerleaders. Indeed, I'm a blessed man. During my career, I have represented this great nation in a diverse group of countries, including Bolivia, Costa Rica, Nigeria, Mozambique, and Afghanistan. As an economic officer, I promoted pro-growth economic policies, implemented development agendas, and advanced commercial partnerships. As Chargé d'Affaires in Mozambique, I led our implementation of over $500 million in economic, health, and democracy programs. As Deputy Chief of Mission in Brasilia, Brazil, I helped provide direction to one of our most dynamic bilateral relationships. And I now serve as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Political Military Affairs, enhancing security partnerships around the world through peacekeeping training, demining activities, defense trade, and security assistance. The United States has long recognized the value and importance of fostering a strong and productive relationship with Ecuador. The United States sent its first representative to Ecuador in 1825, when the US Senate confirmed William Wheelwright to serve as US Consul in Guayaquil, Ecuador. In 1839, the United States and Ecuador signed a treaty of peace, friendship, navigation, and commerce. Interestingly, whereas the commercial and navigation clauses were written to expire after 12 years, the treaty stated, and I quote, in all other parts which relate to peace and friendship, it shall be perpetually and permanently binding on both parties, unquote. If confirmed, I look forward to advancing in concrete ways the long diplomatic tradition of peace and friendship that has helped define relations between our two countries. I'm confident that working in this spirit, we can expand our relations and develop and more fully realize a constructive agenda, one which advances the real interests of our countries. There is much for our countries to do together. The United States has long been Ecuador's largest trading partner with two-way trade approaching 20 billion in 2014, more than double 2008 totals. I will work diligently if confirmed with the government and private sector to expand our economic partnership, eliminate trade barriers to promote increased trade, and encourage investor-friendly practices. U.S. and Ecuadorian law enforcement and security personnel 
work cooperatively to counter regional threats posed by transnational crime, illicit narcotics, and trafficking in persons. Further cooperation and information sharing on these issues can result in greater security for citizens of both our countries. Additionally, our people-to-people -people exchanges are growing rapidly with education partnerships leading more Americans and Ecuadorians to study in each other's countries, thus supporting President Obama's 100,000-strong education exchange initiative. We are also responding to the government of Ecuador's request for expanded cooperation in English teaching with a variety of creative programs. This is a time of great dynamism in the Ecuadorian body politic. Ecuadorians of all backgrounds and beliefs are actively debating and expressing a range of views about the country's direction and future, demonstrable signs of that dynamism. Encouraging such expression, not limiting it, is consistent with the collective commitment to democratic values and human rights, which the United States and Ecuador have both pledged to uphold. If confirmed, I will be a strong advocate for these democratic values as I engage with a broad range of Ecuadorians within national and subnational governments, civil society, religious institutions, the media, and the private sector to promote social justice and greater prosperity for all Ecuadorians. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, Committee Members, if confirmed, I commit to doing my very best to represent the very best of the United States of America to the people and government of Ecuador. I thank you for giving me the honor of appearing before you today. I look forward to your questions and the beginning of what I sincerely hope will be a continuing partnership and dialogue with this committee in the coming years. Thank you. We thank you all, and uh, <clears throat> our ranking member I know is in line to speak in finance committee, so I'm going to defer to him. If no other members come in, I'll then defer to Senator Menendez, who appropriately has placed a lot of emphasis on the geography that all of you represent. So uh, with that, uh, we'll start with our And if I'm member. correct, I think Senator Menendez should also go to the Senate Finance Committee sometime today on our ta international tax, but maybe not. Don't, don't mean to speak for my colleague on mm -hmm. Finance Committee. Uh, first, thank you all very much for uh, your service. As I said to the last panel, including this panel, we very much appreciate your public service and thank you your families, because we know it's a, a family event. In our hemisphere, the countries that are represented here are all democratic countries in that they all have the institutions of democracy, and everyone is challenged uh, on uh, human rights and uh, freedom and all the things that we value. Uh, so there are issues. Just because it's a democratic country doesn't mean it doesn't have significant problems. So, Ms. Maines, let me start with El Salvador. You are correct. We have lots of Salvadorians in Maryland. They have contributed greatly to our, to our state and to our nation. Uh, strong ethnic community and strongly engaged in the growth of America. There's an issue. I was in El Salvador not too long ago and was uh, experienced firsthand the way that gangs control the communities. Uh, I was in Honduras, saw the same thing there. Uh, the government is incapable of rooting out the gang activities, uh, which is corrupting their entire economy. To make matters worse, they're exporting that to my state of Maryland. We have Salvadorian gangs in Prince George's County and in Montgomery County and other places in our state, not very far from here. So 
Give me an idea about the priority you're going to place on dealing with the safety of the people of El Salvador. Uh, their murder rates, of course, are the highest in, in the world. Uh, what are we going to do? What can the United States do to help in this regard? Well, I appreciate your question, and clearly security is the number one issue. Um, it can't be divorced from economic development and governance, but it is clearly the top priority. I am pleased to say that the current government is committed to addressing the challenge. They have developed, in fact, a comprehensive Seguro Salvador, Safe El Salvador, which really focuses on 50 municipalities that are the most troubled. Um, they're committed to establishing rule of law, uh, police intervention at an early stage in 10 of those this first year. There are challenges. Uh, there are definitely challenges on whether they can take that to scale. And that is a real area for them to collaborate with the United States. We already have strong collaboration with El Salvador on rule of law, governance, police issues. We have over 15 agencies represented at the U.S. mission. And I've, I've visited them, and I'm yes. very impressed with their dedication. They're making great progress. I'm impressed by the commitment of their government to the issues. It's just incredible, though, how that network is as strong as it is. It is incredible. But what they're doing in terms of doing a place-based strategy, focusing on 10 priority municipalities in a comprehensive way, not just with adding more police officers, but focusing on prevention, focusing on reintegration of gang members into society. Those are really fundamental steps, and those are definite areas where we can work closely with El Salvador. And I just really want to underscore this point. We want to save the children there. So, I mean, we've had the immigration issues on our border, et cetera, but uh, I, I met with a lot of really neat young people yes. who want to do well for their lives, and I'm worried some if not many of those will get caught up in the violence of their neighborhood and never have a chance. So we are really talking about young people who are trapped in this web, and the United States offers an opportunity here, and your position in, in, uh, in that country can make a huge difference. So I urge you to give this the, your highest priority. Absolutely, thank you. Uh, if I could uh, switch, I guess, to Panama, that's a little bit easier. Uh, but you know, Panama really needs to be a country where our presence is used to help that entire region. It has a lot of things going for it from the point of view of its economy and uh, the, the, the canal, uh, but it does, it is in a neighborhood where they can exercise a lot of influence, and the question is will they exercise the influence and how will the United States play a role in that? Thank you very much, Senator Cardin, for that question. Uh, you hit it right on the head. I agree with you completely. Panama is a country in Central America that because of its geography, because of its history, and because of um, its current government, does not suffer from the same types of problems of in citizen insecurity, uh, shaken governance, and a gang problem that is so pervasive in the Northern Triangle. The United States has a very strong and capable partner in uh, this current government. Uh, we do seek to use uh, our uh, collaboration with Panama to hopefully export it, uh, so to speak, very much as the way we have with Colombia over many years. Uh, President Varela understands very well the threats that are to his geographic north and has expressed already uh, through his leadership at the Summit of the Americas earlier this year 
um, and in a number of domestic programs, his intention to continue collaborating with the United States and with all of the governments of the region to make sure that Panama becomes value added to the many problems that afflict the isthmus. Good. Ecuador, we talked a little bit before we sat down, great country, but has been characterized by Freedom House as having a press that's not free. We, we can't accept that. What, what's your strategy to, to use the tools of our embassy to get a more open society in protecting journalists? Thank you very much, Senator Cardin. I share your concern about freedom of the press in Ecuador. Freedom House Report and many others have highlighted the challenges that a free and independent media have been facing in Ecuador in recent years. I think we, it's very important that we as a government and we as an embassy uh, speak very forthrightly about the challenges that this presents, the creation of kind of open civil societies and governments that we seek to see in this hemisphere. We share a commitment to, through treaties and charters, the Inter-American Dem Democratic Charter is very clear on the importance of freedom of expression. And I think that uh, if confirmed, I will, like like the gentleman who just left as ambassador, Adam Nam, be an advocate and uh, quite frankly, a forthright advocate for these issues, demonstrating how free press is good for free societies. And so I think it's incumbent on us as a government and as an embassy, as a mission, to be very, very outspoken on these issues and to support in any way that we can those who are seeking to express themselves freely within Ecuador. This committee is taking particular interest in the trafficking issue. Uh, several of the countries, uh, Antigua, Barbuda, Tier 2, watch. You mentioned that in your testimony. Um, we have St. Vincent, Tier 2 country. Trafficking is a serious problem. And I must tell you, we, we very much want our mission in the island, Caribbean islands to give us a strong report on how we can hold these countries to making progress against modern-day slavery. And we know at times you want to be diplomatic, but when you're dealing on this issue, you've got to give us a clear indication of how this country is performing on its trafficking, anti-trafficking activities. Are you prepared to do that? Thank you for that question, Senator. As a strong proponent of human rights and rule of law, I am concerned about trafficking in persons in the Caribbean. If confirmed, I will continue the robust engagement with the nations to encourage them to strengthen their anti-trafficking laws and to improve their law enforcement efforts. I think it's important that we increase measures to protect and care for the victims and to try through a systemic approach to prevent people from becoming victims of trafficking. I understand and realize that two of, our two of our countries within the Caribbean are at tier two watch list. Those countries we will focus on along with the other countries within the Caribbean to make sure that they pay attention to the things that need to be done within their countries to stop trafficking in persons. I just want to make this point. I appreciate that, Ian. I just want to make that point. There are objective tests as to how we rate countries in our TIP report. And we expect our representatives from America in these countries to use those standards in its recommendations through the State Department through the ways that you go about doing that. This is not a matter to trade off for diplomacy. This is a matter which we demand uh, 
objective reporting as to a country's rating. I assure you, Mr. Senator, that I, we will follow the standards of the report to evaluate and assess the actions of the countries within the Caribbean. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and congratulations to all of you on your nominations. Uh, just a, I thought I read this from, from your resumes, but I just want to make sure. Mr. Feely, Ms. Maines, and Mr. Chapman, do you all speak Spanish? I know you do, right? Yes. Yes, sir. Okay, great. Um, I'm not going to conduct a Cervantes test now. I just wanted to get a sense of it. It helps, it helps in the country that you're in, particularly in these Latin American countries. So. Uh, let me uh, say that in, in reading your testimony as well as listening to it, uh, in typical State Department form, you have the most positive view of our relationship, our bilateral relationships with these countries, and I get that. But in some of these countries, we have some real concerns and issues. And I don't think we can gloss over them because uh, they, from my perspective, they need to be an essential part of your mission as the, the head of our uh, embassy in, in these respective countries. So let me go over uh, a few of them. Mr. Chapman, uh, I certainly want to join uh, Senator Cardin in his concern uh, about press freedom in Ecuador. I've spoken about this for years, and it continues. Uh, to be one of the most suppressed uh, elements of freedom of the press in the hemisphere. But beyond that, uh, President Correa is a fierce critic of the United States. He's ejected State Department representatives. He's imposed such restrictions on USAID that it had to close its mission. He shut down U.S. counter-drug operations. He's accused the United States of threatening Ecuador's sovereignty. He's aligned Ecuador with the allies like China and Russia, and even provide asylum to WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange at the Embassy of Ecuador in London. So, while I heard the positive side of this bilateral relationship, I think that there is a very pressing series of things, and so I'd like to get a sense from you, notwithstanding that President Correa has supposedly announced that he will not stand for election in 2017, we'll see. Uh, as uh, his political party pushes for constitutional changes that allow indefinite re-election to take place. So we'll see about that. Uh, how, do you, how do you see this playing out? How do you see all of those elements of our relationship uh, playing out? What do you intend to do as the ambassador in pursuing a better direction as it relates to those issues? Yeah, thank you very much, Senator. Uh, it's a very good observation and listing of of the real challenges that we also have in our relationship with Ecuador. We have many areas of substantive engagement where there has been positive movement, whether it is working in education areas and counter-drug and some of the areas where we have seen some real progress at the working level. But you're right, there are many challenges in the relationship and I certainly do not mean to gloss over them. I think what I would seek to do if confirmed is to seek to engage the government of Ecuador on these issues in a substantive way, to get beyond rhetoric and get to talking about the real issues that are of concern to both of our countries. We have signaled these on many occasions. We have had high-level exchanges with the government at various times. I think this is an appropriate time for us to attempt to re-engage on some of these issues that are so important to us. If confirmed, I would seek to find a willing, 
and open interlocutor in Ecuador with whom we can discuss these issues and see if we can chart out a path together to address some of them together. But where we can't, we will continue to not abandon our values and principles and speak out on the issues that are important to U.S. foreign policy and to us as a nation. Uh, I appreciate that. You know, as you go to, if 2017, if President Correa is not going to run, for argument's sakes, uh, whether he runs or not, 2016 is a vital year leading yes. up to 2017. Right. And so I would assume that it will be your mission to be on interlocutors at a governmental level to robustly uh, pursue uh, civil society Absolutely. elements in Ecuador in preparation of an election that we hope is free and fair? Yeah, absolutely, Senator. I couldn't agree more. As I mentioned in my statement, I will be looking to, to meet with and hold dialogues with and learn from a very broad range of society. That includes opposition, that includes religious organization, labor groups, indigenous movements, there are so many groups in Ecuador that are actively expressing themselves about what they wish to see as a nation. I think it's incumbent on us as diplomats to meet with each and every one, to hear their concerns. And so, yes, I commit to you that I will be active, getting around the country, meeting with a broad, broad range of Ecuadorians so that we can see how we can work to support this democracy and this civil society as they seek to express themselves. Uh, Ms. Maines, uh I visited El Salvador uh, a couple years ago when I met with President Funes and the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Minister of Justice and in a very interesting luncheon that uh, uh, Ambassador Aponte arranged with me with members of the Constitutional Court mm -hmm. um, of the Supreme Court, uh, uh, in essence the Supreme Court of Justice of, of their country. And uh, the focus of a lot of my uh, visit was, yes, our bilateral relationships but particularly the question of extraditions. We had a series of uh, fugitives and or others wanted for high crimes uh, in the United States, from drug trafficking to murders and other ones, and we had not succeeded at gaining extraditions. And we had a long conversation with members of the Supreme Court about uh, something that the ambassador had been working on to try to lay the foundation to get. And I had a long conversation with members of the Supreme Court, including the Chief Justice, who comes from a political point of view that uh, didn't necessarily warm to the idea of extraditions. And among the things that we discussed, I said, what if a Salvadorian had committed murder against a member of your family and went to the United States? Would you not want them to be extradited back to El Salvador? Well. The result of that conversation and the continuing work of our ambassador led to a series of extraditions, extraditions we had never achieved before. Now, that still, however, is a contentious issue in El Salvador. And there are still those who are wanted by law enforcement uh, authorities here in the United States. So um, I appreciate what you said about Ambassador Aponte. I want to uh, get a pledge uh, from you if confirmed uh, that you will continue to aggressively pursue those who have committed crimes in the United States and pursue extradition uh, when the appropriate State and Justice Department uh, efforts go forth, that you will make that a priority uh, of your time as ambassador in El Salvador. Senator, you have my pledge, and I can assure you that while I'm a glass-half-full person, I have no difficulty tackling the complicated issues 
and we'll do so. Okay. Well, I actually thought that your statement was among the most sobering of the countries that you're visiting. And so uh, let me ask you the other thing with El Salvador, which is, of course, part of our whole Central American challenge. Senator Cardin talked about it, and it's a huge challenge. And I think we underestimate the United States what that challenge is. Mm -hmm. And this is not about helping the people of El Salvador alone. It is about our own national interests and security. Uh, but also from that stems what we saw with refugee children, migrant children coming uh, to the United States because their parents decide that either they will die here or I will risk them coming to the United States and hopefully they will live there. Now that flow stemmed as a result of concerted effort between the United States and the governments of Central America. But I see a number spiking again. And before we get to a crisis situation where we will revert to what we did before, uh, this is the whole region is not your ballywick, but your country is one of those. Will you make it one of your priorities when you are at post to continue to work with the Salvadorian government on finding ways in which we stem the tide of young children taking a risk on La Bestia to come to the United States uh, and pursue the more active in-country asylum process that we have tried to establish? Well, Senator, thank you for that question. You make the exact point. Is the fundamental issues that have led to the migration crisis have not changed. And in fact, the issues are, the, the number is going back up. Uh, fundamentally, probably the number went down a little bit because of our collaboration in the region, in particular with Mexico. So less were actually reaching the United States. But the number of people who were actually departing El Salvador probably did not go down. And so the fundamental underlying issues, predominantly security, and the research does show that the number one reason people are willing to take that risk with their most precious assets, their kids, the fundamental reason is, in fact, the security issues. Economics is a distant second. And so it is critical that we get a handle on the security situation in El Salvador, not only for security of El Salvador, as you rightly point out, but for security of the United States. And that will be my number one top priority if confirmed. Well, thank you very much. Mr. Feely, um, while Panama is uh, uh, virtuous in many ways, it does have a few issues, uh, money laundering. Uh, Panama made some moves in order to get itself removed from the international list of nations that aren't doing enough to fight money laundering. But these efforts are falling short, uh, in my view. The gray list is maintained by the Financial Action Task Force, an intergovernmental body that promotes anti-money laundering policies. Panama has been on the list since June of 2014, alongside other countries like Afghanistan, Sudan, Syria. Uh, that's not great company. Uh, Panama developed an action plan uh, with uh, the task force in order to remove this designation, which included a legislative proposal meant to strengthen government supervision over the financial sector. However, talks between the task force and Panama have run into trouble lately. Problems include the ease with which corporations are formed, confidentiality regulations that make it easy for corporations to conceal details, minimum reporting requirements, tax exemptions, lax regulations over the shipping industry, which is another concern of mine, and an insufficient legal framework for dealing with money laundering. Do you plan to make this a significant issue of your ambassadorship? 
Absolutely, Senator Menendez. You accurately describe the situation in Panama right now. You've mentioned the gray list, the FATF engagement with Panama. In my current position as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary without necessarily portfolio review for Panama, I have engaged with the ambassador here, with the President and the Foreign Minister, uh, Vice President and Foreign Minister in Panama. I believe that they recognize just how important it is that they work with the international community, with the UN, with the United States to clean up their banking sector so that that banking sector becomes a proponent for legitimate business and it is not uh, subject to the bridging function I spoke about earlier that many times unfortunately invites organized crime. So if I am confirmed, Senator, you have my pledge that this will be one of my highest priorities. Mr. Chairman, I have uh, one other question, if I may. Go ahead. No. Uh, with reference to, because of its location, Panama remains a uh, center for shipping narcotics to the United States uh, and other countries. Uh, what's your assessment of the progress with Panama? Is the Drug Interdiction Committee working? What do we need to do? Absolutely. Thank you for that question, Senator Menendez. Um, Panama is a good partner for the United States. Uh, Panama last year uh, seized over 35,000 ton uh, 35, tons of cocaine, more than all of the other countries of Central America and Mexico combined. As an interdictor, it does uh, quite a good job, and one of the reasons for that job is its consistent partnership with the United States under the Central American Regional Security Initiative. Um, where it has not worked uh, and where we have seen um, deficits in Panama's performance, it's precisely where we discussed earlier in the financial transactions. Uh, we, if confirmed, I will ensure that we continue to work with the Sinan and Senafront. The, as you know, there's no military in Panama, but with the police and the security agencies that guard the borders um, and their air naval service, uh, to ensure that that interdiction level is kept up, that their vetted units are trained professionally by our DEA and our folks, um, but also we will turn increasing attention to the financial sector, sir. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. Just one last comment uh, to the three of you, and I, I, other than Senator Cardin's remarks about trafficking, that's why I didn't spend a lot of time with you, uh, Ms. Tagliatella, but I'm sure that uh, you'll do a fine job there. I, I sometimes worry that in these countries, uh, while we say that we promote our values, we muff it. And I think that the purpose uh, of our interests, uh, yes, sometimes they are clearly commercial, uh, but what makes America a beacon of light unto the world uh, is what it stands for in human rights and democracy. And when we do not show that beacon in these countries that you are going to all represent, because the country that you're going to represent is the United States of America, the country you're going to be assigned to, then uh, I think we do ourselves an enormous disservice. Now, that sometimes creates problems. Maybe, Mr. Chapman, you might get thrown out of uh, Ecuador for doing it, but I would applaud you. Uh, maybe uh, Ms. Manns would uh, find challenges, I don't think so, but uh, in raising some of the questions, uh, justice questions in that country or the you know, questions of money laundering in that country. But that is the very essence of why we have missions abroad, to promote those issues. So I, I just want to urge you, it's a refrain that I intend to make to each one of our nominees as we move abroad, because I, I often feel that we muff 
uh, our concern about human rights and democracy. We say they are principles for us, but then we give them uh, second or third building as it relates to our missions abroad. And so when I go to visit you, I will be looking forward to seeing what you have done in that regard. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I uh, appreciate the fact we have four qualified nominees uh, nominated to positions that are very important to us here in the Western Hemisphere. I sometimes think there's not near the emphasis on the Western Hemisphere that should exist. Uh, there are tremendous uh, challenges that we have there, but also significant opportunities. Um, members of the committee uh, will ask questions uh, in writing through Thursday, close of business. I'm going to ask my questions uh, through QFRs in that manner because of the time. But I want to thank you for your testimony here today, for bringing family members and for their service to our country in support of you and in other ways. And uh, with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you.